Well, I invite you to take your Bibles, if you would, and turn with me to the book of 1 John, 1 John chapter 5, 1 John chapter 5. Two weeks ago, we were discussing how to identify idols in our souls, and uh, it seems that this series has been dragging because I've been gone, I've been sick, and so today, Lord willing, we will be done with this series of idols in our hearts. And next Sunday, we will be starting our new series uh, in the Gospel of John. But as we end this series this morning on the idols of our heart, I want to just give some summary statements of where we were last or two weeks ago. We were looking at how we go about identifying idols in our hearts, how we go about seeing them properly. And then this week, we are going to look at how to replace them, how to destroy them, how to kill them. But for a summary statement from last uh, two weeks ago, last time we were together talking about this subject, I wanted to remind you of just kind of solidifying and synthesizing five ways that we can identify idols in our hearts. Five different ways, and just give these to you in a bullet point fashion so that we can piggyback off of them as we continue. Number one, Scripture reveals our idols. Scripture reveals our idols. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 and 13 says, The word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even dividing the soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything that is uncovered or everything that is covered is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. So if you want to find the idols in your life, you have to turn to Scripture and let Scripture, as you read Scripture, let Scripture read you and identify those idols. Secondly, the Holy Spirit is so helpful in identifying the idols, the things that we turn to for satisfaction other than Christ and Him alone. Jeremiah chapter 17, verses 9 through 10 says, The heart is deceitful above all things. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind. Psalm 139, verses 23 through 24 says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. If you want to know the idols, search the scriptures and pray and ask the Holy Spirit to reveal those idols that are in your heart. Thirdly, the church. The church is instrumental in identifying idols in in our hearts because the church can help Draw out what it is you're living for. Draw out the motivations of why you do what you do. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 5 says, The purposes of a man's heart are deep waters, but a man of understanding draws them out, puts a a bucket into the well of the soul of, of man and draws out what's going on, what the intentions are. Proverbs 27, verse 5 says, Better is an open rebuke than hidden love. And there are times that we have to go around rebuking each other, confronting each other, saying, okay, I I hear you say something. I want to help you. I think that the scripture says this. And we even talked about that this morning in Family Bible Hour, that the church has been designed by God to act out in grace the, the one another's, the gifts that God has given to us spiritually and to live in communion together and unity together. Proverbs chapter 12, verse 1 says, Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge. But he who hates correction is stupid. (laughs) I love that. The Bible says it like it is. Number four, circumstances can identify those idols in our hearts. James chapter one talks about trials that bring out perseverance and test us. Second Corinthians chapter one, verse nine says, but this has happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but rely on God alone. There are moments that happen in our lives that are designed by God, circumstances that are designed by God to prove, to test what's going on in our lives. And finally, number five, a fifth way that we identify idols in our hearts is behavior. Our behavior, we talked about this a little bit two weeks ago, but our behavior can reveal what's going on in our hearts. Galatians 5:19 says the acts of the sinful nature are obvious. It's obvious when we are loving anything other than Christ. And Colossians chapter 3 verse 5 we'll look at it this morning in depth. It says we are to put to death whatever belongs to our earthly nature. So we can see it, we identify it, we put it to death. 
Those are five ways that we can identify. And in our behavior, a man by the name of David Pallison, who is a biblical counselor, he's with um, Biblical Counseling um, Corporation Foundation, and he's very, very helpful in asking questions that would get into our hearts, that would probe our hearts, that would be like that well drawing out what's going on in our hearts. He has 34 of them, 34 questions to get you to think about the thoughts and the intentions of your heart. I'm not going to ask you all 34. I think I'll ask you just seven. But just to, again, encourage us to be on the lookout in questions that can help identify these things. Question number one, what do you love and what do you hate? What do you love? What do you hate? We talked about this. What is the bottom of your soul? What are you living for? What is it that you love? What is it that you hate? Number two, what is it that you want, desire, crave, wish for? What is it that you daydream about, like we talked about two weeks ago? Number three, what do you seek and aim for? What do you pursue? What are your goals? What are your expectations in life? Number four, what do you fear? What do you fear the most? What do you not want? What do you tend to worry about? Number five, what do you think you need? What are your felt needs? What are the things that you think are necessity? Number six, where do you find refuge? Where do you find safety, comfort, security, pleasure? Number seven, who or what do you trust? Who or what do you trust? Number eight, who must you please? Who do you live to please? Whose opinion of you counts? From whom do you desire approval and fear rejection? Whose value system do you measure yourself against? What is your worldview? In whose eyes are you living? All of these questions can bring to the surface what's going on in our hearts. And I, I'm going to put this, all 34 questions of this um, little survey that David Pallison has, I'm going to put it on our website so that we can just kind of look at these and be encouraged by them. But once we identify the idols that are in our hearts, the question is, what do we do next? What do we do next? And J.I. Packer helps us. He says, sanctification has a double aspect. Its positive side is vivification. It's, it's living, it's vibrantly living, it's growing, and it's the maturing of a new man. But its negative side is mortification, the weakening and killing of the old man. So we have to live in newness of life, but we have to kill the old man. We have to kill those idols. We have to see them, we have to identify them, and then we have to destroy them. We can't coddle them, we can't play with them. Biblically, in responding to idols in our hearts, once we find them, is we must replace them and we must destroy them. We're going to look at how to do that. But I have you in 1 John chapter 5, verse 21. I want you to look at this verse because I think it's helpful to be reminded. It seems so out of place. John just writes at the end of his letter, Little children, guard yourselves from idols. Some of your translations might say, keep yourself from idols. He's been speaking this entire time of what it looks like to be a believer. Really, he gives tests of whether or not you are truly saved. And he consistently says five times in his letter, I write these things so that you may know that you have eternal life. He's writing to, to teach us to examine our hearts so that we can know that we're saved. He wants to give us assurance. He wants to give us joy. And the last thing that he writes, he says, little children or beloved children, the ones that I love, guard yourselves from idols. Keep yourselves from idols. David Pallison says, John's last line properly leaves us with the most basic question which God continually poses to each human heart. Has something or someone besides Jesus Christ taken title to your heart's trust? preoccupation, loyalty, service, fear, and delight. It is a question bearing on the immediate motivation for one's behavior, thoughts, and feelings. In the Bible's conceptualization, the motivation question is the lordship question. Who or what rules my behavior? Is it the Lord or is it a substitute? In this one little verse... John, in essence, summarizes everything that he has said. He summarizes it all. He's been saying this is what it looks like to be a believer. This is what it looks like to be a follower of Christ. This is what it looks like not to be. And so if we can sum up everything that it looks like not to be a follower of Christ, it's called idolatry. And so he says, keep yourself from that. Pursue Christ. Keep yourself from pursuing anything other than Jesus. 
And I would say to us at Christ Bible Church, that is what we must do. Guard ourselves. When we see the idols, we must kill them, we must replace them, and we must be on guard. So, how do we do it? How do we replace idols? Two words, very simple, and we'll look at these in detail. Two ways that we replace the idols that are in our hearts. Number one, we repent, and number two, we rejoice. Number one, we repent, and number two, we rejoice. First, let's look at repentance. Repentance. If I were to ask you for a definition, you might give me a 180-degree turn. And yes, that's exactly what it is. Turning from something to something. Turning around from one thing to another thing. Literally, the Greek word means a change in your thinking that leads to a change in your living. Literally, the Greek word metanoia means a change in your thinking that leads to a change in your living. So with idolatry, what does it look like to repent of our idolatry? First, we must have a change in our thinking. We used to think that we could be habitual idolaters and be okay. That God doesn't really care about idolatry. And then we read 1 Corinthians 6 that says, if idolatry is a pattern of your lifestyle, you cannot inherit the kingdom of God. So our thinking changes, okay? I can't be an idolater. I can't. We used to think that we could be satisfied by these things. Like Jacob, wanting to be satisfied by the love that Rachel could give, and then all of a sudden he wakes up and in the morning it's Leah. Once our minds believe that and understand that, our thinking changes, okay? We thought all of these things, whatever they are, all of these idols we thought could satisfy us, and now we know that Jesus Christ alone can satisfy. That these don't. We have unmasked these idols. They don't satisfy ultimately. Our thinking changes. And then we start to just taste and see, in the words of the psalmist, that the Lord is good. We just start to taste and see that he is good. And these things grow strangely dim in the light of his glory. And we say, wait, this is who we want. Our thinking changes. And when our thinking changes, our living, our behavior, our lifestyle must change. So what does repentance look like? When dealing with repenting from idolatry and the lifestyle change that will come from this repentance, from this change in our thinking, what does it look like? Let me give you four ways that we must repent of our idolatry. Four ways that a change in our thinking will then live itself out in a change in our behavior and our living. Number one, if we are to deal properly and biblically with the idols in our hearts, we must get rid of everything connected to our idolatry. We must, number one, get rid of everything connected to our idolatry. Turn to Numbers chapter 33. I think it's been a while since we've been in this book. Numbers chapter 33. This is always the book whenever you start a new Bible reading program for the year. You're just gung-ho about Genesis and you forgot how amazing it is. And Exodus is just surprising you again and you're loving it. And when you get to Numbers, Leviticus starts it and then Numbers you're just... It's like, please, let's just make a beeline out of here. It's a difficult book, but there's so much amazing truth in here. Drop down to verse 50 of Numbers chapter 33. Numbers chapter 33, verse 50. The Lord speaks to Moses in the plains of Moab. This is where he's going to die. He's preparing the people of Israel to enter into the promised land. And this is what he says, verse 51. Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When you cross over the Jordan into the land of Canaan, so past the Jordan, through Jericho, into Canaan, then, this is what you must do, you shall drive out all the inhabitants of the land from before you. Let's just put the inhabitants, let's put idolaters. We're going to drive out all of the idolatrous pagan people. And you are going to destroy all of their figured stones and destroy all their molten images and demolish all of their high places. This is where all of the idols used to be. The high places were little temples and shrines set up to these idols. And you shall take, verse 53, possession of the land and live in it, because I have given the land to you to possess it. Now you would think going into the land and getting rid of all of the idolaters would be enough. But God says, no, you need to go into the land, get rid of all those who are practicing idolatry, and then get rid of their idols. Tear down the high places. Demolish their idols. 
Deuteronomy 7, verse 5. Just write these down. It says pretty much the exact same thing. Um, For sake of time, we won't turn to them, but I want you to have them. Deuteronomy 7, verse 5, and Deuteronomy 12, verse 3 say the same thing. When you are entering, remember Deuteronomy is the second telling of the law. It's the second telling of what you are to do when you enter the promised land. And it says the exact same thing. Go in, drive out all of the inhabitants, and then destroy all of their high places of worship. And we must remember that these idols where they were worshiping, these different graven images, were usually not thought of as gods themselves. They were representative of the God that they were worshiping. They were just representations, meaning that those physical idols were facilitating their idolatry to these false gods. And God says, you know what, you need to get out. You need to throw away and destroy anything that would aid you and point you in any way, shape, or form to follow a different God. Anything. So the question for us is, what facilitates our idolatry? What facilitates our idolatry? We must identify what our idolatry is, and then we have to figure out what feeds it, what breeds it, what aids in me worshiping these false gods. Whatever it is, we must tear it down, we must throw it away, we must get rid of it. In Acts chapter 19, Paul is ministering in Ephesus, and there are a group of people there. You can write down Acts 19, verse 18. There are a group of people there who believe, and they have an amazing job, and they're making bank. And the whole of these people show up together. They've been worshiping false gods. They've been making graven images, and they show up together, and they throw everything that they've made into a pile. And the passage tells us that them giving up their idolatry cost them 50,000 pieces of silver. 50,000 pieces of silver, which is a Greek drachma. And a Greek drachma, a piece of silver, is one day's wage. So this is 50,000 days' work gone in an instant. They say, we don't want it. Get it out. What we used to love and serve and crave and trust and obey, we don't want and we're out. It costs them. And if you want to deal radically with your idols, it will cost you. It will. Jesus expresses this exact same concept in Matthew chapter 5. If your right eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out, throw it far from you. It's better to lose your eye and part of your body to go into heaven than to have your whole body and go into hell. The reality is we must get serious with our idolatry. We can't coddle our idols. We must realize that a true rejection of an idol includes much more than just a rejection of that idol. Everything that leads up to that idol, we need to get, a, get out of our sight, out of our vision. In essence, you cannot change your idols without changing other things too. You can't change the idols in your heart without changing other things too. Can I just ask, if we're humble and, and we admit, okay, we struggle with idols... How many times have you tried to fight the idols in your life? You've realized there's something I'm pursuing that I shouldn't be pursuing, and I'm not going to do it anymore, and I want to find my satisfaction in Jesus Christ. And then before you know it, you're back serving and worshiping that idol. Why? Maybe it's because we haven't destroyed that, that breadcrumb trail that's leading us back to it. We need to get it all out. We need to destroy it all. So again, I ask, what is it that you have in your possession that promotes and encourages your idolatry? What is it that you have? Maybe it's your television. Maybe it's your internet. Maybe it's movies. Maybe it's certain books. Maybe it's Facebook. Maybe it's credit cards. Maybe it's smartphones. Maybe it's alcohol. Who knows? But whatever those idols are, we need to trace them back to what might promote and facilitate our idolatry. And we need to deal radically with it. You might say, you know what, I need my phone. I need my smartphone. Um, Just in case I happen to be skiing in Mammoth and I get lost, I need a GPS. I need my smartphone. You know how radical it would be to get rid of that smartphone? How do I live? I would say, number one, yes, it probably is a radical thing. But number two, it's not as radical as plucking out your eye. And you can live by plucking out your eye and getting rid of that. And Jesus said, do that. So if he thinks that's what you should be doing then I think getting rid of a smartphone is no big deal in his mind. We can't tolerate or coddle 
or leave ourselves the opportunity. We need to deal seriously with our sin. That's the first step of repentance. Secondly, number two, we need to avoid anything that would draw us back to our idolatrous desires. Number two, we need to avoid anything that would draw us back to our idolatrous desires. Deuteronomy 7 verse 25 says this, that we are to avoid um, the, the pagan people that were still worshiping these false gods. We were to not have anything to do with them. The Israelites were not to have anything to do with them. In the New Testament, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 14 says, Flee, my beloved brethren, flee idolatry. Flee. What does this look like for us? Can I just say it this way? We need to be careful the company that we keep. We need to be careful the company that we keep. Um, just as God said, don't intermarry, don't mix with pagan worshipers, we need to be careful the associations that we have in this world. What encourages you to pursue your idolatrous desire? What encourages you? Is it people? Is it things? Is it movies that you watch? Is it books that you read? What encourages you to pursue those things? What circumstances in your lives pursue you or encourage you to pursue that idolatrous desire. Whatever the answers are, we need to create plans in our lives to flee those things. We just cannot expect these idols in our hearts to just go away if we aren't doing the work of repentance. Number three, we need to, if we're going to repent of these idols in our hearts, number three, we, we need to not associate with those who put other things before the Lord. Number three, we need to not associate with those who put other things before the Lord. Now, that word associate needs a little definition because it doesn't mean that you can't have friends who are non-believers. You need to have friends who are non-believers. That's the only reason God left us here on this earth. We can worship better in heaven. We can have unity better in heaven and fellowship better in heaven. Realize one day, we talked in Family Bible Hour about stepping on our toes one day we won't have toes to step on in heaven. Like no one can make us mad anymore. It won't, no, no buttons on us to be pushed, nothing. We can fellowship better in heaven. We can worship God better in heaven. We can do everything better in heaven. The only thing that we can't do better in heaven is evangelize. We need to be evangelizing here. We need to. That's why God left us here for the great commission, for the purpose of sharing the gospel and pointing non-believers to Christ. So when I use that word associate, I'm using it in really a 1 Corinthians 5 sense. Remember in 1 Corinthians 5, there was a man who was involved in immorality, and it was gross sexual immorality, and the church championed and applauded the fact that they had a practicing um, sexual immoral, immoral man in their midst, and they weren't going to do anything about it. They were going to just love him and just take care of him and just look over his sin. And Paul says, that's not what a church does. A church deals with sin. You need to deal with this. And from that, he goes on to say, don't associate with immoral people. Don't let them be your best friends because their worldview will creep into your worldview. Don't do that. The reality is you and I have the power to influence others. That's, again, why we're here, to evangelize. But others have the, the power to influence us. And we need to remember that. We need to remember that. Paul will go on to say that a little leaven leavens the whole lump. A little yeast will make the lump blow up. We used to do this in my family. Uh, we would make pizza. And we'd, we'd make, start from scratch, make the dough, put the yeast in, and just watch it in this little bowl. It was nothing. And you'd put the little towel over it and it would just blow up. Our expression that would be similar to that is one rotten apple spoils the whole barrel. Heard that expression before? Be careful the company you keep because one rotten apple spoils the whole barrel. But it's interesting the way that our words betray what we believe about these associations. Our phrase, it's a rotten apple, it's fruit. How long does it, does it take for fruit to go bad and then for it to make other fruit go bad, and for you to be able to see it. I don't know about you guys, we have a little fruit basket, and when the fruit goes bad, I don't know until I take it and I'm starting to bite into it, and I go, wow, something's growing on here. This is a science experiment. I don't want this. It's not as easily seen. It's not as easily identified, and it's a much slower process. Whereas yeast, 
The illustration that God himself gave through the Apostle Paul happens so fast. It happens so quickly. And you can see it. It blows up. There's no doubting that the yeast did its job. So too, as yeast multiplies and exponentially explodes so fast, not slowly over time like rotting fruit. The question is, what is your yeast? Who are your closest friends? Do they encourage you to pursue Jesus? Do they encourage you to run after idols? Or do they encourage you to fix your eyes on Jesus alone? Again, your best friends, your closest friends. I pray that all of us have friends who do not know Jesus so that we can share the gospel with them. I pray that. But our closest friends need to be those that have a biblical worldview and can encourage us to pursue Jesus. They must be. They must be. Our deep friendships, not just our relationships, must be with believers and not non-believers. Finally, number four, if we are to repent of our idolatry, we must pursue biblical sanctification. We must pursue biblical sanctification. Regeneration, the new birth, happens at the moment of conversion where God gives us a new heart, new affections. And he justifies us in that moment to declare us righteous before the Father. So we are completely as righteous as Jesus Christ himself in heaven, positionally before God. But here on earth, we still struggle with sin. The old man, the fleshly man, is still inside of us and wanting to sin. So how do we get rid of it? There are three steps in sanctification. We've talked about this before. We have to put off certain things, so we would put off our idolatry. We have to put on certain things, and we're going to talk about that in a little bit. But we also, number three, in the middle between putting off and putting on, we need to be renewed in our thinking. This is all in Ephesians chapter 4. There's a whole step, a whole process in this. We have to put on, be renewed in our thinking, or put off, be renewed in our thinking, and put on. Sanctification requires that we expend the maximum amount of energy in fighting sin and allowing God to work in our hearts to give us new desires. So that's repentance. That's what repentance looks like. It's a serious thing. It takes work. You don't just wake up one day and you don't struggle with sin anymore. It takes work. But I'm afraid that our repentance only has that involved in it. I'm afraid that our repentance has become, on a whole, on a majority level, just fear-based, I don't want to do this because I don't want to go to hell. And that kind of repentance won't last long. That's why there's two steps in replacing idols. You have to repent. You have to be serious and get rid of these idols and, and work hard on getting rid of the surrounding things that will lead you to idolatry. But number two, you must rejoice. If all you do is look at, I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't, I won't, I won't, I won't, I won't, I won't. Don't do this, don't do this, don't do If that's all you stare at without rejoicing in Jesus Christ, your repentance will become drudgery. It will become so painful and annoying and you will hate it and you won't be able to conquer sin. That's why number two is so important. Repent and then rejoice. What do I mean by rejoice? I mean, find your delight in Jesus. Find your delight in Jesus Christ. Turn to Jeremiah chapter 2. Jeremiah chapter 2, we have Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations. Jeremiah chapter 2, we're going to look at this a little bit more in depth next week, but just, just to kind of whet our appetite for what we're going to be doing next week. Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 7 and 8. God is... is Setting up court. If you like those shows like Judge Judy and things like that, that's what God's doing right here. He's setting up a court. There's a jury. He's making a trial here. He's putting Israel on trial. He's bringing in defendants. He's bringing in witnesses. And what is his court case against Israel? What is it specifically? If you go to verse 7, God says, it's Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 7, I brought you, Israel, into the fruitful land. I did it, and I did it so that you could eat its fruits and its good things. But you came and you defiled my land. I told you to get all the idols out. You didn't. My inheritance you made an abomination. 
verse 8, the priest did not say, where is the Lord? And those who handled the law did not know me. The rulers also transgressed against me and the prophets prophesied by Baal and walked after things that did not profit. So therefore, because of your sin, I will yet contend with you and with your son's sons, I will contend. And this is going to be his kind of opening and closing argument in this court case. Cross to the coastlands of Kittim and see. Send to Cater and observe closely and see if there's been such a thing as this. What he's saying is search far and wide and see if anyone has ever done what you have done, Israel. What have they done? Verse 11. Has a nation changed its gods? What have they done? They've changed their gods. They were worshiping the one true God and then they said, we want to worship something else. And what God is saying is, can you see any other nation who's ever done that? Look at the nation who worshipped Baal. Did they ever decide one day, I don't think it was a good idea to worship Baal. I think we should be worshipping somebody else. And decide, you know what, we're going to make a new God. No, they were faithful to their God. Even when, verse 11, they weren't gods to begin with. They were faithful to something that didn't even exist. But my people, the ones that I brought into the promised land, the ones that I loved, the ones that I took care of, my people have changed, literally exchanged their glory for that which does not profit. They exchanged me. They took me out of the equation and got something else. So, verse 12, be appalled, O heavens. This is the jury. These are the witnesses. These are the people looking on. Be appalled, O heavens, at this, and shudder. Be very desolate, declares the Lord, because my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, to hew for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Two evils. Two evils involved in idolatry. Number one, forsaking the Lord. Number one, verse 13, they have forsaken the Lord. They've said, we don't want you anymore. We're going after somebody else, something else, anything else. But number two, there is a huge evil in what they do next. They don't just forsake. They hew for themselves cisterns. And they're not even real good cisterns. They're broken cisterns that can't hold water. Back in the time of Israel, you have three main water supplies. You have a a spring, a bubbling, flowing spring. That's the best because it's always moving water and it's coming up and it's, it's natural and it's beautiful and it's fresh spring water. That's why Jerusalem was built around a spring. The walls were built around it so that if somebody wanted to come and invade Jerusalem, if if you invaded back then, you would cut off their food and their water supply. And so Jerusalem, as they're building uh, the city of Jerusalem, they decide, you know what? If we leave the spring outside of the wall, then our enemies can come up, uh, cut off the spring. We won't have water. We'll die. So they build a wall around the spring so that they can have water even in the time of war. So you have springs. Then you have wells. And wells are usually built from an offflow of the spring where you have water that can be um, dug into. You can take the, the bucket, dig out the water, bring it up. It's fresh. It's not the best. It's not as good as a spring. But it's usually a runoff from a spring. It's usually close to a spring. So if you can't have a spring, a well is a good idea. The third source of water back in the time of Israel was a cistern. And you know what a cistern is. It's just a big um, piece of land that's been dug out and you put like clay and mortar in it and you just take water from the well and put it into the cistern it's a holding tank for water Um, animals love these places animals will go get a drink slip from the sand that they're trying to put their feet on slip into it die and now you have a dead antelope just rotting in this cistern that's just disgusting it's nasty if you're going to have a cistern, or if you're going to have a water supply, the cistern's not what you're going for. It's not what you want. They don't even get a cistern. They have a broken cistern that can't even hold water. So think about this cistern, this holding tank for water. It has cracks on the bottom, so the water's seeping into it, and the dirt and the mud that's uh, coming from the water seeping down into it is coming back up into the cistern. It's just gross. And yet Israel would gladly take just a handful of that sludge and try to drink water from it than to go to the fountain of living water, which is Jesus Christ. They don't truly believe that he satisfies. They don't truly believe that. 
when people abandon a single-minded devotion to God, it is because they have concluded that God alone cannot satisfy their needs and their desires. How do you get to this place? We're going to talk about it more next week, but this is a serious place. This is a serious indictment to say, God can satisfy, but not the way I want, so I'm going to something else. I'm going to something else. So, I say that all to say this. If we are to overcome idolatry in our hearts, we must go back to the fountain of living water. We must go and rejoice in and delight in the fountain of living living water. We must realize that every morning we wake up and it's Leah because it's a broken cistern that can hold no, no water. And we are so foolish to find our delight in these things. And so we go back to Jesus Christ, who alone is our rock, who alone is our salvation, who alone is the fountain of living waters. This is what our hearts cry out for. This is what our hearts ache for. Remember Augustine said, our hearts are restless until we find our rest in you. We just say that quote without remembering his background. I want to read you Augustine's background. He struggled with idolatry in the form of sexual immorality. He struggled with it. There was basically back then a a city named Carthage that was like Las Vegas uh, in our time. It was just sin city. If you wanted to go and enjoy the pleasures of this world in sin, you would go to Carthage. Listen to what Augustine says. As I grew into manhood, I was inflamed with desire for a taste of hell's pleasures. So I went to Carthage where I found myself in the midst of a hissing cauldron of lust. He had always been struggling with lust, always been struggling with sexual immorality, and he decides, I'm going to Las Vegas. I'm going to the pit of sin here. This is going to be great. But on his way there, he's converted. And he says this. How sweet all at once it was for me to be rid of those fruitless joys which I had once feared to lose. He says, oh, they're fruitless joys, but somehow I feared to lose them. I knew that they wouldn't satisfy, but I wanted them. I craved them. So how sweet finally for God to pry them out of my hands, for them to be unmasked and for me not to be afraid. He goes on, you, God, you drove them from me. You who are true, the sovereign joy, you drove them from me and you took their place. You who are sweeter than all pleasure, though not to flesh and blood. You who outshine all light, yet are hidden deeper than any secret in our hearts. You who surpass all honor, though not in the eyes of men who see all honor in themselves. O Lord, my God, my light, my wealth and my salvation. Augustine knew that Psalm 16 is true. At God's right hand are pleasures forevermore. And he knew that and he believed that and his life was drastically changed. If we truly believe that, every second of every day we would never seek for satisfaction anywhere else. If, if we truly believe that Jesus Christ is the fountain of living water and we went to him every second of every day, we would never sin again. That's why we struggle with sin We know it here. We know he's amazing. We've tasted and we've seen that he is good. But whether it's circumstances that cloud our vision, whether it's things of this world, whatever it might be, we start to second guess. Are you really enough? In 2 Chronicles chapter 30, verse 13, King Hezekiah is celebrating Passover for the first time in a very long time. They found the books, they started reading them, they start celebrating Passover again. And in chapter 31, after celebrating Passover, I love the sequence of this. All of the people of Israel start celebrating Passover with Hezekiah. And after they celebrate Passover, in chapter 31, verse 1, they say to one another, we need to go tear down the idols. We've left high places and we need to go destroy them all. Look at the order of that. They celebrate Passover. They remember the grace of God. They remember his kindness and his goodness that there was no way they were going to survive, and he brought them out of the land of Egypt. He was the one that made the way. He was the one that saved them through the Red Sea. He did it all because he loves them. And as they remember the grace of God, as they feast over the Passover, they remember the grace of God, and it motivates them to say, we need to go destroy the idols. So often we do the opposite. So often we say, you know what, I need to do my work. I got to do my work. I got to read my Bible. I got to pray. I got to do my spiritual disciplines. I need to destroy the idols in my life. And then I can go and I can celebrate the Passover. 
Now I can go and I can celebrate communion. Now I have it all together, God. I'm worthy to partake. I'm, I'm ready to go. And if you think about the irony of those statements, now that I've done everything that I can do, I'm ready to enjoy your grace. No, it's the opposite. I can't do anything. I enjoy your grace and it motivates me to live differently. It motivates me to live differently. Turn to Colossians chapter 3. Let's bring this whole series to a close here, specifically looking at rejoicing and delighting in Jesus and what rejoicing-based repentance looks like instead of fear-based repentance. Colossians chapter 3, verse 1 through 5 details the idols in our hearts. And in it, we see that idolatry is not just a failure to obey God. It is a setting of our whole hearts on something other than God. Let's, let's read these passages or these verses. Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, since, literally, it's since you have been raised up with Christ, keep on continually seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things that are on the earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So when Christ, who is our life, is revealed, we also will be revealed with him in glory. There, there's the gospel inherent in there. You have been raised up with Christ. You've died to sin. You've died to your old self. You've been raised up to newness of life with Jesus Christ. You're seated at the right hand of God by no merit of your own. Therefore, you can't lose it by any merit of your own. You can't lose your position in Christ by any merit of your own. So therefore, verse 5, because of the grace you have been given, do something. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, and greed, which all amount to idolatry. So we have the grace of God that is our foundation, and because of the gospel, Paul says, now live a certain way. Be motivated to live a certain way. Tim Keller is very helpful here, talking about delighting in the Lord and letting delighting be our foundation for repentance. If we were to set our whole heart on God alone and not on something else, if we were to replace idols, I think we can find him helpful here. He says, this cannot be remedied only by repenting that you have an idol or using willpower to try and live differently. Turning from idols is not less than those two things, but it is also far more. Setting your mind and your heart on things above where your life is hidden with Christ in God means appreciation, rejoicing, resting in what Jesus has done for you. It entails joyful worship and a sense of God's reality in our prayers. Jesus must become more beautiful to your imagination, more attractive to your heart than your idol. That is what will replace your idolatry. If you uproot the idol, this is key, if you uproot the idol and you fail to plant the love of Christ in its place, the idol will grow back. If you say, okay, I'm going to get rid of this idol and then just keep on living life, and you fail to cultivate a love for Jesus Christ in its place, the idol is going to go back. We must repent but we must rejoice and find our delight in Christ. He goes on to say, rejoicing and repentance must go together. Rejoicing without repentance, repentance without rejoicing, fear-based repentance really only goes so far, and it is really self-pity. Fear-based repentance is really self-pity. We are repenting of our sins, not because we are sorry for the sin and the offense that it is against God, but really because we're sorry for ourselves. We see it doesn't satisfy and I want to be satisfied, so let's get this out. We're sorry for ourselves. In fear-based repentance, we don't learn to hate the sin for itself and it doesn't lose its attractive power. Fear-based repentance makes us pity ourselves and hate ourselves for not getting out, for being enslaved. Joy-based repentance makes us hate the sin. When we see what Jesus did in dying to set us free from that thing that we are cherishing, then we say, how could I cherish this anymore? I can't. It makes us hate the things that Jesus Christ died to free us from. And rejoicing is absolutely necessary when putting off idols 
Because remember, we talked about a lot of the idols in our lives are good things that turn into bad things because we make them God things. So this is very helpful. It doesn't mean that if you have, let's say, an idol of your spouse, if you have an idol of love or an idol of your family, it doesn't mean that you start hating your family. It doesn't mean that you stop loving them. It just means you rejoice in Christ more. You start loving him more. You are delighting in and rejoicing in your family too much to the place where you've placed them on a pedestal and they are your gods functionally. So how do you cure that? You work at finding your delight and satisfaction in Jesus. You love him more and they will take their rightful place in view of how much you love Jesus. Paul told us that we should rejoice in the Lord always. Philippians chapter 4, verse 4, we studied that. But this obviously cannot mean that we need to feel happy all the time since no one can command someone to simply have a particular emotion. To rejoice is to treasure something. It's to assess its value to you, to reflect on its beauty and its importance until your heart rests in it, tastes the sweetness of it, trusts, obeys, and loves it. Rejoicing is a way of praising God until the heart is sweetened and rested and until it relaxes its grip on anything else that it thinks that it needs. This is putting to death the idols that we serve, treasuring Christ, delighting in him. Yes, repent, but don't do so without first rejoicing in who Jesus is and all that he has done for you. How do we rejoice in Christ practically? I know that this answer gets really old. Read your Bible, pray. It's the spiritual disciplines. The spiritual disciplines are what points us to the fact that Jesus is all-glorious and amazing. The more we are in the Word, the more we see Jesus for who He truly is, the more that we realize He does satisfy our hearts and the less that we will start chasing after other gods. We need to worship Him through song, meditation. We need to memorize Scripture. We need to read Scripture. We need to fellowship with other believers. The bottom line is worship replaces idolatry. Rejoicing replaces idolatry. It does. But it takes time and diligence. It's not a one-time thing. In fact, I believe that we will struggle with this for the rest of our lives. I used to think that, we're gonna, that I would conquer certain sins, you know, just boom, 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 done, 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 and never struggle with things ever again. Like I'm going to stare at one sin, get rid of it, done, no problem anymore, and now move on to the next, and then on to the next, and on to the next. And sure, that happens in outward ways, but... The affections are always going to be a struggle. It's one of the reasons why heaven is going to be such an amazing place. We're never going to struggle to find our delight in Jesus Christ ever again. Ever. It takes time and diligence. It takes perseverance to replace the idols that are in our lives. We think we've learned about grace. We think we understand the gospel. I had somebody tell me um, after Brian's sermon last week about the grace of God. I had somebody tell me it was good, it was, it was basic, and I, I knew it already. I was like, I'm really glad he preached on grace. We never get over it. We never get beyond it. We never fully know it. Even in heaven, we're just going to be singing, worthy is the lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. We're still singing about the gospel of Jesus Christ. We can't fully understand it. So we think we've learned about it. We think we've set our idols aside. We think we've reached a place where we are serving God, not for what we're going to get from him, but for truly who he is. And then we realize, oh, I still have idols. We think we're getting to the bottom of our hearts. We think we're getting down to the bottom and we're realizing, hey, I'm done. I've uprooted everything. And then, oh, another idol springs up. Oh, another idol springs up. It's like my lawn. There's weeds everywhere. And I don't know when they grow, how they get there. I'm sure not putting weed seed out there. Somehow, some way, another weed pops up. And so I'll take a Saturday morning, and I will go out with a fine-tooth fine comb and get every single weed that I see, everything. And I stand on my front porch with my arms crossed, and I think, I did it. No more weeds. And the next day, there's weeds how did this happen? How did I miss them? How did they grow so fast? Why can't my grass grow that fast? What's happening? When we look at our, our idols, I think we will have a false sense of assurance when we say, look, I've, I've plucked them all out. They're all gone. Hooray. 
And I just want to encourage you with this. Maybe it's not an encouragement because you have a long road ahead of you. But here's my encouragement. Brothers and sisters, we're never going to fully uproot all of the idols in our lives. We're never going to get there. And so I think our understanding of maturity should not be how few idols we have, but how quickly we can assess the idols that are in our hearts and how fast we can replace them with a love for Christ. That's maturity. If we think, if the goal is no idols, I would love to say no idols, no sin, but it's not going to happen this side of heaven. So let's have a realistic goal. Let's have a biblical goal, which is let's identify idols faster, let's get rid of them quicker, and let's delight in God in a much more intense way. Mature Christians are not people who have completely hit the bedrock of their souls and cleaned out every idol and they're totally fine. That's not possible in this life. They're people who keep on drilling to the bottom, keep on drilling to figure out what is the motivation of my life. Why am I living life? John Newton says it this way, If I may speak of my own experience, I find that to keep my eye simply on Christ as my peace and my life is by far the hardest part of my calling. Just to keep my eyes on Christ. It seems easier to deny self in a thousand instances of outward conduct than it is in ceaseless endeavors to act as a principle of righteousness and power to keep my eyes simply fixed on Jesus. He says, oh, it's so much easier to kill sin outside of me. It's so much easier to identify those things and self-denial and all of those areas. It's so much easier to do that than to just keep my eye on Christ. Brothers and sisters, let's keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. That's why we started this, Hebrews chapter 12. Fix our eyes on Jesus. Let's have no God but God. Let's let him be our, our vision, our treasure, and our delight forevermore. God, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for just a brief overview of identifying and replacing and killing idols in our lives. And I pray even now as we sing that you would do the work of showing us our idols, that we would be singing as a prayer to you and confession to you that these are things that we struggle with, these are things that we find our satisfaction in over and above you and you alone. We have hewn out for ourselves broken cisterns. And we want to return now to the fountain of living water. So God, please answer this prayer as we sing it. May we delight in you now. <laughs>